about is translation research in diabetes. So I think people, I don't know how many basic scientists are in this room, but I think we talk a lot about um, the translation from bench to bedside, um, sort of the translation from what we learn in the laboratory, from preclinical and animal research to human clinical research um, and clinical trials. My work is really at the very far other end of the spectrum, which um, this is adapted from an NIH roadmap that talked about T2 or stage T3 research. Some people call it T4 research. There are now even, I think, other numbers and other frameworks here. But the concept is that what I really focus on is how to take what we know works and make it happen in the real world, in practice, for patients and their health, in communities, and across populations. And for me, this has taken um, sort of three areas. One is comparative effectiveness research with the GRADE trial, which I'm not going to talk about today because I'm going to assume you've heard a lot about that or will hear a lot about that. Um, but so I'm going to talk today about um, how we can improve glycemic control in our primary care population. So that's a population management project that we did. And then how to translate a complex behavioral intervention that we know to be effective into kind of usual care for people and how to generate the evidence base for that. So that'll be the focus of my talk today. So first I want to describe to you a population management effort that we undertook to improve diabetes care across our entire primary care population. So I think people in this room may even be sick about hearing about the importance of diabetes care in the patient-centered medical home. So obviously I think we know that most diabetes is cared for in primary care settings, and diabetes is really the prototypical chronic disease. And I think you know, for a long time in my career, I was sort of psyched about this. Now I'm sort of at the point where, look, can't you, know, can't you even think about other conditions? It almost feels like diabetes is too much, too much targeted in these initiatives. But, but at least I suppose we should be grateful that people care. Um, but when patient-centered medical home models started being rolled out, of course, one of the main chronic conditions that was targeted for management in patient-centered medical home was diabetes, because it is really a model for team-based care, for how healthcare providers can help patients with patient self-management support. Obviously, it's a huge quality improvement issue. Um, disease management, disease self-management, and even informatics sort of all feed into the management of diabetes in the primary care setting. And there was lots and lots of evidence to support the importance of taking care of diabetes care in the patient-centered medical home. Although I do want to point out to people that still to this day, although these are older references, um, those a lot of the papers that support this are really observational. Um, before and after type studies, uh, they really have not been good randomized trials of this sort of effort. So, but when you look at those sort of studies, um, patient-centered medical home does seem to show improvement in ED visits, pharmacy utilization, um, and then in diabetes, there have been improvement in quality of care measures. Um, in terms of process measures. The outcomes measures improvements have been really quite modest. Um, but then there have been certain places like Geisinger that really adopted sort of an intensive <coughs> approach that published lower risk of amputations and end-stage renal disease in people who were enrolled in their diabetes care uh, patients and a medical home model. But I do want to point out that in that model, patients were self-selected. They were sort of offered, offered the opportunity to enroll in a patient-centered medical home care model. And so it wasn't even really observational. It was sort of a self-selection with a healthy um, user bias. So take it with a grain of salt. But that said, I think there was a strong belief that there was consistent improvement in the organization of care with less staff burnout. And I think intuitively, and I think this, this crowd does not need to hear that a team care model in diabetes really is a rational approach to the care of diabetes. And that certainly was not what was going on in most primary care settings. 
So at the same time that all of this was going on, part, so MGH, I should just give a little background, it's a big hospital in Boston, it's a member of Partners Healthcare along with the Brigham and several other hospitals in eastern Massachusetts, and it undertook a huge effort to redesign the way that it provides care across multiple conditions starting in 2010, and diabetes of course was one that was targeted, and across um, the Partners Healthcare Organization, the main targets were to use generic medications more appropriately and less brand name medications, to use oral agents more appropriately, um, particularly with a focus on shifting to insulin, and I'll talk in a minute about why that was. Um, and that people who run two or more oral agents should be started on insulin. Now this was pre-SGLT2, um, this was pre-evidence about liraglutide, but this was thought to be the way to go. It was driven to a large degree um, by the older ADA guidelines. So my boss, David Nathan, is a sort of nationally recognized figure in uh, diabetes research, and he was the author of the earlier ADA guidelines that preceded the current ones. And those guidelines, I'll just remind you, really said, look, use metformin and sulfonylurea, and if that stops working, insulin should be preferred due to cost and, and effectiveness. So at the time that we started this, that was sort of the approach we were following. So we developed guidelines that set criteria for insulin initiation related to hyperglycemia and age with a higher A1C threshold depending on older age. So people who were older, 65 or older with an A1C of 8 and above persistently on two oral agents were thought to be recommended to go on insulin. The other reason we targeted insulin is that it's really hard to start insulin in the primary care setting, and there are many, many studies that show this, that um, it's very time-consuming, Doctors are afraid of it. Patients are afraid of it. There's a lot of clinical inertia. You know, we'll do it next time, but that sort of next time never comes. Um, and so that felt like a reason for us to put effort into teaching people how to do this. And then it also seemed nationally, when you looked at studies, that insulin was underutilized. And that for people with uncontrolled diabetes, it is still true that insulin is the highest yield treatment. It works. It works when many other things do not. And so that felt like if we were going to put resources into targeting a population, we didn't want to sort of work around the margins. We wanted to do something with high impact. So, um, however, we didn't really just want this to be about starting drugs. We really wanted to use this process of teaching um, primary care practices to start insulin um, as sort of a test case to incorporate all the behavioral and lifestyle approaches to diabetes care that I think diabetes centers try to incorporate but happen less frequently in the primary care setting. We also wanted to use it to sort of build a team care model. We thought that if we built out the roles around team care related to diabetes, that could potentially be used for other chronic condition management, whether hypertension, COPD, what have you. Um, and then we also felt very strongly, and I think this is probably true in these parts as well, you know, at MGH there's a lot of um, excellent, excellent committed providers, and we felt like this was not going to be a case of we make guidelines and you carry them out. We really felt like we needed to engage the primary care community and how their practices worked, um, how they wanted to take care of diabetes, and sort of use that to develop a model, and, and then sort of try and disseminate that model. And so we went through this very extensive um, diabetes care redesign process that was really multidisciplinary. Obviously, there was some endocrinology involvement, but it was mostly primary care involvement with um, primary care providers, primary care nurse practitioners and nurses, dietitians. Um, and that was a huge piece to bring in sort of the dietitians from around the institution who were great champions for this, um, administrators, pharmacists, and also psychologists. Um, and then the institution put some real muscle behind this by putting sort of process improvement specialists in our group and in primary care to help us um, make changes. So we kind of went through a whole 
kind of quality improvement uh, brainstorming process, developed sort of a handbook, and sort of launched a pilot. And what we learned from our process improvement was that the barriers were sort of what you would expect. Insulin is really hard to prescribe, very time consuming. People really did not know what to do. They didn't know how to prescribe insulin. They, there was a lot of confusion, which I guess is obvious, but I think once you've been in diabetes for a while, you forget really how much confusion there is. Um, there was no ability to track patients um, you know, using registries, and that was a major handicap. It was very hard for it to do case finding for the practices. And then both patients and providers were resistant. And so we sort of targeted our solutions to try and improve a team care so that it wasn't just all falling upon a busy primary care doctor to start insulin on the fly in a visit. Um, we sort of really trained nurses to be engaged in doing this. Um, we set forth insulin initiation and titration protocols. We actually, at the same time, um, developed a population-based information management system, which has now been further supplanted by a new electronic medical record, but that was a big deal at the time. And then we really tried to incorporate um, ways to address provider barriers as well as patient barriers. And so what we ended up coming up with was within each primary care practice, of which there were 18 to 20, um, ultimately 20, each practice had to appoint a physician and a nurse diabetes champion. But particularly the nurse diabetes champion was empowered to coordinate patient provider, medical assistant, and a dietitian sort of all around the patients in that practice. Um, we used all this new content we developed. We worked with the dietitians to have sort of really clear messaging around insulin initiation, how to start insulin without weight gain, you know, visits that were sort of targeted, dietitian visits that were targeted to the time of insulin initiation to ameliorate the side effects. Um, we based this in the practice. There was some question as to whether should all these patients be referred to the diabetes center or to an insulin initiation clinic. And that model was rejected by the practices as sort of being impractical and undesirable. Um, and we piloted it in three practices um, and then used this new informatics tool to manage it. And I'll just say, I'm sure you all have a tool like this now. In 2010, this was sort of a big deal. Now it is not a big deal, but one of the things since it was in-house was that we were able not only to sort patients by A1C and LDL, but we were able to sort of build in the um, insulin initi initiation and titration criteria so you could quickly call up a list of patients who were eligible for the new process and start to um, target them. We sort of had this process map, and the only thing I'll point out here is that a, a, a huge part of the process was getting patients psychologically ready and getting them sort of administratively ready with, you know, things that could be covered and having other members of the practice trained to do that, as well as pairing insulin initiation with dietitian visits. Um, those were, that was a huge sort of thing that we did that was new for our place. Um, so in order to do this kind of on a wide scale, you know, what made it work? Well, we had the sort of central uh, mandate to do this, but primary care support really kind of, we kept, kept bringing us in to talk to practice leaders and the primary care practice leaders to say this is coming, this is our results from our pilot, it's coming soon, and we sort of had a lot of communication about how it was going to work. Um, they were mandated to appoint a nurse and physician um, primary care uh, diabetes champion in each practice. But once we started, there I don't know if you guys have here, uh, QI incentive bonuses, so that when people meet certain quality targets or do certain new things, the practice, the people receive actually incentive checks. So the QI incentive bonus was targeted towards adoption of this process for all physicians. So that helped, obviously, enormously. Um, and we also had these semi-annual training conferences that went on for about three years, where the nurse 
um, champion, the physician champion, the dietitians, and the practice staff all came together, trained together, learned together. And those conferences had started out with sort of um, educational content during the first half, but the second half of the conference, which would usually be four hours or so, was to sit with your own um, practice and have devoted time to work through a workbook of how you were going to make this work in your practice. And so getting the whole group together to learn together and then plan how they were going to go back to their practices and use it was, was very helpful. Um, and then ultimately this, of course, built out the medical neighborhood. Um, so here are our results, which we published in the American Journal of Medical, Medical Quality in 2016. And I will just say that having criticized the other studies for being observational, I sheepishly present to you observational data. Um, and that is because I actually tried really, really hard to get our, you know, to get MGH to allow us to randomly assign practices to do this. But I think as is so often the case with quality interventions, people just want to do it. They don't want to test it. They want to do it. And I think that's very short-sighted because it's a lot of effort that goes into something like this, and it would be much better to do some kind of randomized evaluation, but we, we did not do that. So um, so what this shows is that um, it shows sort of all of our primary care patients in 18 primary care practices who were um, not all people with diabetes. We excluded people sort of who nominally had diabetes but had A1Cs less than 6.5 on no medicine. So many of those people are labeled as having diabetes, but they are not included in this. Sample. These are people who sort of had medication-treated diabetes based on EMR diagnosis and prescription of glucose-lowering medications. And what we saw over time was that we did have an increase in the rate of insulin prescription, which was relatively modest. Now, at the same time all this was going on, people sort of stopped using TZDs because of everything that had happened with Avandia. People started using GLP-1s. Um, but essentially, we probably had a shift from ineffective sulfonylureas to more insulin to a small degree. But it was enough of a degree that overall the rate of A1C greater than 9% in this population did drop over time. So we felt good about that. Um, we need to take a look at the 2015 and 2016 data. We went through a cataclysmic event, which is that we switched to EPIC uh, in the last year. Maybe you guys are already have already done that. Um, and that, so all of our nice kind of data systems and data polls that were kind of easy to do we are sort of now hard to do. So I, it is on my to-do list to get back to you with more recent data and see did this effect persist after the um, project wound down. But just to show what happened is this is the prevalence of the population with A1C greater than 9. At the very beginning of this effort in 2010, partners sort of sent out just guidelines saying this is what you should do with generic medications. Um, and that alone actually led to a pretty significant drop in the proportion of the population with an A1C um, that was greater than 9. We started our pilot, we disseminated our pilot, we then implemented, and we saw in the following year a, bi a big drop. So we think this did have an effect. So just to summarize, this was a huge kind of QI intervention that built a lot of capacity and expertise and enthusiasm around diabetes care and primary care. We thought it was associated with changes in insulin and other medication prescribing with an improved population level A1C. Um, but what was also interesting about this is it gave rise to a lot of other innovations. So we started doing e-consults, which is within our own um, primary care network. Primary care doctors can now um, write in to say, okay, I've got this patient, their A1C is you know, this, what, what medicine should I prescribe? And endocrinologists write back. But because we'd already done this, a lot of the people writing in know us a lot better than they knew us previously because we'd spent a lot of time going out to the practices. 
So now when we're um, managing diabetes through an e-consult, we often really know the people who are emailing us, whether it's the diabetes nurse practitioner champion in each practice or even clinicians who, have, who we've met because part of doing this process was we went, we went out to all the practices um, and really got a face with a name, and that I think has really allowed us to leverage this to good effect. Um, has helped us build a medical neighborhood. And then I was actually hoping at many points while we were doing this to get this sort of work funded and to sort of um, test it in a randomized fashion across the partners network. I was really unable to get it funded for a variety of reasons um, that we can talk about, but what it did do was it did develop this infrastructure for further practice-based research, which was a huge bonus. It helped us to recruit for grade, which I'm not gonna talk about today, but I would be happy to talk about in questions. And it helped us sort of get on to our next project, which I'm going to talk about in a minute. But before I go on to talk about the next project, maybe I'll just pause here and see if there are questions about this diabetes care redesign bit. Yes? So this kind of decrease in the proportion of people with high BMC yes. 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 Um, what about the minimum Yeah, not a big change, because most people have A1Cs of less than nine. It really only, but we only really targeted the high A1C population. But yes, it's a good point. One of the main barriers here, in addition to inertia, is a feeling of a lack of expertise. Mm -hmm. So I'm interested to see that you didn't seem to have much pushback about, well, can't you just do it, which is a big problem here. Yes, so that's a cultural thing. Um, certainly, MDH is a place where people do not suffer from a sense of, I can't do it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> not, not, a big, not a big problem around those parts. No, but I, I do think people felt... Um, I think we built, I think people wanted to hear how to do it and then felt like they could do it. So I don't know what to say about that, except we did, we did have, the, the teaching conferences were very well attended. So they went on, we, we event, this eventually was sort of stopped because we then focused on other conditions. We sort of now have a big new focus on addiction and that's sort of the big push. But, um, but people came to these conferences twice a year for three years. So I think there was a real hunger for knowledge and the conferences were very good. So. We started by focusing on um, insulin and how to use insulin, but we moved on to talking about other diabetes drugs. We talked about how to manage difficult patients. You know, we sort of, and people were very interested here and I think used it. So, not everyone, but there was uptake by a large number of people. I'm not sure if that addresses your, yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so let me turn now to talk about um, something that really is much more of a traditional research project, which is how to translate a lifestyle intervention to clinical practice. And, we did, and it does sort of link to the other because we were really much better able to do this because of what we had already done um, for primary care. So before I do that, I'm going to take a step back and remind people about the Look Ahead study, which people in this room may be very familiar with. It was an 11-year randomized multi-center trial that followed about 5,000 patients um, age 45 to 74 with type 2 diabetes and overweight. And the goal was to examine whether the long-term effects of an intensive lifestyle intervention compared to diabetes support and education could reduce the risk of a composite cardiovascular outcome of cardiovascular death, non-fatal MR, <coughs> non-fatal stroke, and hospitalized angina. And this, the results of this trial were published in 2013, and many you know, interim papers were published over the years. And essentially, the intensive lifestyle intervention really worked to reduce um, weight, big drop that was sustained over time. The control group notably also had weight loss over time as the population aged and really got excellent standard diabetes. The standard was probably much better than the standard, I can tell you. Um, but physical fitness 
was better in the blue dots, which is the intensive lifestyle group, relative to the standard diabetes education group, and that was sustained over time, waist circumference, uh, and A1C was sustained over time on less meds. I can tell you that we were a look-ahead site, and I have patients who were in both arms of this trial, and the patients in standard diabetes education are still mad that they didn't get the intensive lifestyle, and the patients who are the intensive lifestyle are not uniformly better off, but they are better off. They are a lot better off. They really are physically fit. They're exercising. They have continued to do this, even though the, the, the intensive, I mean, the intervention has ended. Um, but what happened? You know, the headline from this study was intensive lifestyle intervention is ineffective because it did not reduce the risk of cardiovascular disease, which was the primary outcome of the study. And so there was no reduction in the primary outcome or any of the pre-specified um, components of that primary outcome. Um, and that's what the trial was, you know, powered to look at, we thought. But it turned out it may or may not have been powered to look at that. So on the one hand, it was a very ambitious outcome in the sense that um, it's a long-term trial, people at high risk. And the people in the standard diabetes group got more statins, got very aggressive management of blood pressure and um, other cardiovascular conditions such that the event rate overall was one-third predicted in both groups. So the, the trial may even have been underpowered for what it was trying to do, even if the intensive group, even if the uh, control group hadn't been as aggressively treated for cardiovascular disease. So one way of looking at this is not that it was ineffective for cardiovascular disease, but there were improved outcomes that were accomplished with lifestyle in one group and with increased medications in the other group, and probably both groups were healthier than the general population by virtue of the fact that they were screened to be in this very long-term clinical trial. And so I guess one other thing I can tell you about the people I know from Look Ahead is they're not your typical diabetes patient. They were people who were prepared to commit to a very long-term lifestyle intervention trial. And, you know, they're higher SES. They're less likely to be less likely to be underrepresented minorities. They're really just very not reflective of the population with type 2 diabetes. Um, so the other thing is that there were actually enormous benefits of the intensive lifestyle intervention, not only in terms of A1C, blood pressure, triglycerides, people taking fewer medications, lower medication costs, which I'll show you in a minute, but lots of things that we can't treat with medications. So this was uh, described in a paper by my co-investigator and collaborator, Linda Delahanty, um, who was an architect of the diabetes prevention program as well as the look-ahead interventions. Um, basically, there's less sleep apnea, less physical function, less knee pain, more diabetes remission, actually less microvascular outcomes, less sexual dysfunction, less urinary incontinence, better quality of life, less depression. So all these kinds of things that we cannot give people a pill to treat were vastly improved in the intensive lifestyle group. Um, and actually, medication costs over many years were low. I mean, not med medication costs, but basically medical service use was lower. So there were lower total costs to the tune of $5,000 um, over 10 years. Medication costs were lower to the tune of $2,400 over that period of time. Hospitalization costs were lower, and there was really no difference in terms of outpatient visit costs. Um, so basically, it's about a $595 cost reduction per year per patient on average. So why haven't we seen a paper on the cost effectiveness of look ahead? Oh, oh sorry, this is just more detail on the kinds of things that were reduced, and this is instructive in the sense that um, long-term rehab is reduced, um, home care was reduced, and intensive lifestyle hospital days were reduced, 
and hospitalizations were reduced. So these very, not only expensive, but very unpleasant and bad quality of life things were, were, were absolutely reduced in the intensive lifestyle intervention arm um, with no difference in outpatient visits um, and some reduction in medications. Um, and so the degree to which there was less medication use is there were 17% less medication used to treat hyperglycemia, 6% um, less medication to treat hyperlipidemia, and 6% less medication to treat hypertension over that 10-year period of time. But why haven't we seen a cost-effectiveness analysis published? The reason is that it was a pretty expensive intervention. So I don't know how many of you are familiar with what was done in Look Ahead, but it was intensive in-person sessions with group sessions over many years, and it was you know, conducted by very highly trained people, and it was a very, very expensive intervention. So um, you know, if it saved 575 a year, but the cost in year one was 3,000, and year two was 1,760, year three was 12. 74, year four was 1176, and this was just what I found in like an ancient abstract. It's actually very hard to get costs on this intervention, I think, because it, it was expensive. Um, so it worked. Um, I think we think this is the foundation of what we want to do with people with diabetes. But it was conducted at very high cost in a clinical trial format, which is really what makes it very ripe for translation, sort of at the, at the uh, far end of the translation research spectrum. So I want to tell you now about two projects that are um, attempting to translate this into usual care. Um, the first is the ID Health Study. This is being conducted by Ron Ackerman, who's done a lot of, di who's done a lot of diabetes prevention program translation work in the YMCA uh, with David Marrero. He's at Northwestern. And the ID Health Study is, a, is, is a, called Intervening in Diabetes with Healthy Eating Activity and Linkages to Healthcare. And Essentially, what they've done, analogously to what they've done with the um, DPP translations, is they've adapted the look-ahead for group delivery in the YMCA. And this is actually an amazingly brilliant trial design. So they, they want to look at sort of an implementation research, what really happens in the real world. Not can we screen you know, these high SES patients who are willing to commit for a long period of time to a trial, but really what happens when we offer this to people? What's the rate of uptake and how well does it work? And as you probably know from trial recruitment, as soon as you call up somebody on the phone and say, I have a trial, are you willing to be randomly assigned? Right away, there's a whole bunch of people who say, I don't want to be in a trial, I don't want to do that. And no longer do you have a representative population. So they have a concealed randomization. Um, and what this, the way this works is people are called, are told, or sort of on a list to say, do you want to hear about um, diet and exercise for diabetes? And they say, sure, call me. And then once they get that, um, on the phone, they're then randomized to either getting more information about it through community information sources or to additional contact by a YMCA employee, which allows them to estimate in the people who were initially interested how many people will then, when they are contacted by the YMCA, take up that intervention. Um, so it's ethical to do this concealed randomization because there's really no harm in either treatment and neither one is really the standard of care. And it really allows them to see what's, what's the real world rate of use of this program. So they are doing this trial right now and we'll see what it shows. So it's a really very population based approach. It's in the why and I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about what they're doing in their trial in a little bit. Um, our trial is called Real Health, which stands for Reach Ahead for Lifestyle and Health and, and Diabetes, Real Health Diabetes. And um, the comparison of these two trials is that, and ours is much more, ours is attempted to be practice-based, I'll tell you more about it, but it's, it's still much more on the kind of clinical trial end of the spectrum than what ID Health is doing. 
but both are group interventions, so there's a lower cost intervention. We are doing um, weekly and bi-weekly visits for six months, followed by monthly visits for 18 months, which will end in two years, and then we're going to have a three-year follow-up to see what the persistence of the effect is. Um, they're doing weekly for six months, bi-weekly for six months, and then monthly um, with refreshers, kind of like happen and look at. So actually, they have more sessions than we do, even though it's theoretically a lower intensity intervention. Um, we, like Look Ahead, use meal replacements to help induce weight loss. That was a huge part of the effect in Look Ahead was that people had sort of supervised use of meal replacements to help them change um, their, portion, their portion control and jumpstart weight loss. They do not use meal replacements. We actually are still using dietitian interventionists for a variety of reasons. So my co-investigator, co-leader uh, of the trial is Linda Delahanty who is a dietitian, um, we think that it is a pretty dietitian intense intervention and we feel like we get a really good effect with dietitians. You know, there are pros and cons of that approach. Reviewers looked at this and said, well, are, are there enough dietitians to do this and can't you have a trained, you know, health worker? And so ID Health is actually not using dietitians. So we'll be able to look at the effect of that. They're using um, people who are sort of behaviorally trained college level people who've been trained to deliver this intervention. Um, and we are really recruiting from our primary care network, like I just explained. Um, one of the reasons we're doing this is we're doing supervised medication reduction so that when we use meal replacements and people actually do start to lose weight, we can reduce their insulin, reduce their sulfonylurea so they can lose weight and also don't get hypoglycemic. The YMCA is being conducted in, I mean, the, the ID Health is being conducted in the YMCA. They're recruiting from a larger network of 44 practices around Chicago. But if participants have side effects, they're encouraged to call their PCPs for help with medication management. So it's lower intensity from a medical supervision standpoint. So ID Health has already published their baseline paper. Um, their reach was, um, was pretty good. They reached about 35% of patients who um, they thought were eligible, and 32% of those eligible patients enrolled, which I would say is pretty good uptake for a long-term um, lifestyle intervention program. Um, and that was sort of what they predicted. They have great diversity, it's 35% white, 30% African-American, and 27% uh, Hispanic. They were able to enroll 42 Spanish speakers with a very broad income distribution. Um, and so, and I'd say their population is representative in other ways. The BMI was th uh, 35, A1C was 7.2. Um, you know, almost 90% were on diabetes medications and 24% were on insulin. They unfortunately had an imbalance in insulin use between the two groups. So I realize I've just built this up like I'm going to show you their results. They haven't published their results, so I can't show you their results. But here's what to watch for. Um, I, I, you know, I think what we're going to watch for is, you know, people took it up, but how much did they stick with it? And then what was, what was the effect? Did it work? And so we'll see with, when they publish their results. Um, we are doing something pretty different. So we obviously have been a look-ahead center. We saw all of our patients who'd been look ahead and done, and done very well. We wanted to be able to offer this to our patients, but we couldn't um, because it's obviously not a clinical program. So we got some seed money to do a pilot trial. Our pilot trial was called IDLC. Those results are published. And that was a, um, IDLC stands for Improving Diabetes Outcomes with Lifestyle Change. We enrolled 57 patients who were randomly assigned to a lifestyle intervention versus standard care. These were 57 primary care patients from our network, not highly screened. Um, and the goal was that they would lose 7% body weight, basically the look ahead targets. 175 minutes of activity per week. We did a 19 week group program exclusively, um, aiming for 1200 to 1800 calories a day. We used meal replacements to 
we didn't force people to use meal replacements. We suggested and offered meal replacements. And like Look Ahead, there's a very strong emphasis on teaching behavioral skills for long-term success. And standard care was referral to a um, brief nutrition counseling with referral to a dietitian. So sort of better than standard of care in the sense that people were really encouraged and scheduled to see dietitians. But that was covered by insurance, not by the study. Um, and our IDLC baseline cohort was actually quite different from the Look Ahead cohort. So we had many fewer women. Um, we had less minority representation, which reflects the MGH uh, primary care population. A little bit older than the Look Ahead population, 61 versus 58. BMI was similar th at 35 versus 36. Weight similar. But we enriched for people using insulin and sulfonylureas because we wanted to be able to show meg reduction as one of our primary outcomes. Um, so we had 70% people on insulin versus about 15% in look ahead, and the A1C baseline was 8.2 in our IDLC population compared to 7.3 in look ahead. And this is a randomized control trial, so these are real results um, that we can say for sure. So in the dietitian group, important to show that medical nutrition therapy is still a really, really important and effective treatment for people with type 2 diabetes. So people who refer to medical nutrition therapy loss on average 2 kilos, 20% lost 5% of their body weight, 3% lost 10%. They had some A1C improvement and had some medication or dose reduction. But the people who were in the group lifestyle intervention had a greater response. So loss on average 6.6 .6 kilograms, 46% lost 5% of their body weight, 32% um, lost 10%, which was quite dramatic. Um, we had an improvement in A1C and more med reduction. So the combination of kind of improved A1C with reducing or dropping a med was very significant in our group. Um, and when we ran our sort of cost analysis, which we published, um, it cost about 578 per patient for the six-month program because it was this group intervention. And just to remind you, the look-ahead savings was about 595 per year. So we feel like this is now getting into the range of where this could be a cost-effective Thing to do. Um, and so just to kind of compare costs, IDLC we think costs about 578 per year for the clinical intervention cost. That is not including the cost of research time and all that kind of stuff, but for the cost of, you know, booking the room, calling the patients, the dietitian time, uh, and the physician oversight time. DPP Lifestyle has published one-year costs of 1826. Weight Watchers costs about 515 per year, and then Look Ahead, just to remind you, was quite expensive because of all of the combined individual and group sessions. So we had our pilot study, um, and we then sort of used that pilot data, plus kind of our preliminary data from our population, from our diabetes care redesign effort, to actually apply for an R18 um, implementation grant from NIDDK to actually conduct a larger scale study of our, of our adaptation of look ahead. So we are now in year three of a three-arm patient level randomization that's randomly assigning um, people to an in-person group lifestyle intervention, which is essentially very similar to what we did in IDLC. Um, the second arm is a telephone conference called lifestyle intervention, and this has been done, I know you are good friends with Ruth, but this has been done with the DPP, but has not been done with Look Ahead to try to um, see can we achieve similar results on the phone where people don't have to kind of come in to all these visits. And then the control arm is referral to um, a dietitian for individual medical nutrition therapy. So we are conducting this mainly, we started conducting it at three community health centers, um, which we developed these relationships with through our diabetes care redesign effort. 
And one of the ways that we really got engagement was we actually have a primary care co-investigator at each site who's paid a, to be kind of a on the model of a clinical trial um, to be a site for our study, but that is based at the, at the health center instead of based at the research center. Um, we are recruiting using our population management approach that we developed um, from diabetes care design and grade actually. And we're actually conducting it in Spanish as well. So we translated everything to Spanish. We put a lot of effort into engaging the Spanish speaking population. It's been very challenging. So I'd be happy to talk more about that if people are interested for this population. Um, and we're targeting a sample size of 210, and we're at 162 right now. So we're very, we're, we're almost there. Um, and the goal is to detect a 3.5% difference between any of the two study arms. We're adjusting for, intra, for clustering within each intervention group. And we're actually assuming a 10% dropout rate, but um, we actually are not getting that kind of dropout rate so far because we are basing it in primary care in our own system. So we really do have retention of people, at least for study visits, if not for all of the um, group visits. And so what are we doing? We're having weekly sessions for 14 weeks, bi-weekly for 10 weeks. Um, then we go to monthly sessions with some individuals sprinkled in. And then for the year three, there's really no intervention, and we're going to bring people back at the end to see how they did. The skills are self-monitoring, goal-setting, controlling stimulus, solving problems around eating and exercise, preventing relapses. We are using meal replacements. And importantly, I, I really do feel the supervised medication reduction is a huge part. I think you all know well. Um, but it's not actually, it's a, it's often comes as a surprise to primary care audiences when we talk about how limiting it is um, to be on insulin and the sulfonylurea for weight loss when people are sort of feeding their insulin um, and eating to support a dose. And so really, the, what, the way we work it is the dietitians actually review the log that the patients are keeping for the intervention anyway. And when glucose levels hit a certain threshold, that triggers a physician review and the physician then says, all right, reduce the lantus by 10 units that is then communicated to the patient and the patient carries on. And so it's really very straightforward. It takes you know, less than 20 minutes a week of physician time to kind of review the patients who need this to be done. And it's very effective in tapering the medicine and permitting weight loss. So what are we looking for? We're looking for mean weight loss at six months is our primary outcome, but we're going to be following results to three here. Looking at all the medical outcomes, psychological and behavioral outcomes, cost and cost effectiveness, and health behavior is a huge piece of this. Um, so just to kind of take a step back <clears throat> and talk about implementation research, um, for people who are interested in doing this, I think it is helpful to frame it in the theoretical framework. There are a couple of them that are quite useful. One is this precede-proceed model, which sort of looks at um, what are the facilitating factors um, and what are the barriers, and I sort of touched on some of those throughout the talk. Um, this RE-A model is another model for looking at um, implementation interventions. So What's the reach? How much of the proportion of the, of the eligible population actually enroll in the trial? What's the effectiveness? You know, in this case, A1C. Um, adoption. Did people use it? Did practices take up the adoption, uh, take up the intervention? Um, how was it done? What was the fidelity? Um, how did you actually make it work? And then maintenance um, of effect, both at the patient level and at the practice and system level. Can this can a program sort of persist? And so th those are things that I have been sort of touching on in both of these. Um, projects and are things I think to keep in mind when you're trying to roll out a big project. Um, in the case of our research project, we really were able to leverage the network from the Diabetes Care Redesign Project and use the infrastructure that was already there. Um, I've touched on some of these things already. Um, but this, this um, having our own network and doing it within our network, um, while probably more expensive than doing it in a YMCA, is probably also going to be more effective than doing it in a YMCA because we are 
reducing medications, we're then letting the primary care doctor know or updating the medical record and having it all within system. One system really leverages that infrastructure um, to help the patient and also to make everything clear to the treating providers. So barriers that we found. I don't know whether you've tried to do this. Trying to do research in the community health centers was really quite difficult. Um, it was very hard to pay clinical. We were going to initially do this by paying medical assistants and training medical assistants in the practices to do this. Well, we ran into all sorts of issues. One, people at the health centers didn't even know how to use the research funds. Two, if we got, if we exceeded people's 40 hour per week, we, we run into overtime. So we had those sorts of considerations. Space was a major issue. Um, we then had a situation where we actually did manage to overcome all of those barriers. We trained all these people. We had, as I previously mentioned, our EPIC implementation, which was like an earthquake that went off in the healthcare system. And actually, many of those people just quit. They didn't quit us. They quit their job. at our, So I mean, it was like beyond belief. So that was, that was very hard to do. And we ended up having to really bring some of it back into the research framework by hiring our own research coordinator who now goes out to the health centers because it was too hard to use the, the research health center, the health center staff for research outcomes, even though our outcomes are like blood pressure. So it was really quite difficult. We had to get them all trained in city. You know, so even though they could take blood pressures and record everything we needed them to record, they had to be city certified. So we had all these medical assistants who we were training in the city course, and it, it was really um, remarkably difficult to carry out um, in this way. And it's probably something to think about on a larger scale when we think about how we want to do large-scale uh, patient-centered research. The three-arm randomization, I wouldn't recommend doing a three-arm randomization <laughs> or a four-arm randomization for grade. No. So this is a three-arm randomization of a group intervention. So we really need to get a bolus of patients, of like 30 patients who can be randomized to each group before we can even start. And that's very challenging. Um, turns out we've had a lot of internal competition for patients from other studies, not, not only from the Diabetes Center. Um, and then the Spanish language cohort, um, we have bilingual staff. We are on site in Chelsea Health Center, which is a large Spanish-speaking population. It's been very, very hard to, for, for this population to find time to commit to this intervention, even on the telephone. And we are making it work, but it's, it's quite challenging. And for the people who are enrolled, it is working, but it's, it's really been hard. Um, so. And then the final point, I did just touch on the ID Health. I think one of the really nice things about looking at these two trials side by side is that when you think about an, the overall impact of any kind of intervention you're doing, you're thinking about impact as the product of reach times effect. So a project like the ID Health, I think, will almost certainly have greater reach than ours, which is really limited to patients within a network. But the effect size will almost certainly be smaller because they're not using um, dietitians. They don't have a population that's as engaged. Um, and so we'll probably have a bigger effect, but a lower reach. And it'll be interesting to see sort of what, what makes the most sense, you know, from an uh, overall impact and from a cost perspective. So I think it'll be really nice to compare those. I think it's also really important when looking at complex behavioral interventions to think about what's, what's the active ingredient and what's the effective dose. There are a lot of kitchen sink type interventions, and it'd be great if you could randomize every component of that. You really can't. As, as a practical matter, but being able to look at similar studies and compare across studies, I think can allow us, will hopefully allow us to infer what's, what's most important. Um, and then finally, the reason I kind of wanted to share this um, study with you, I didn't end up talking about grade, but I think that doing research at this end of the spectrum, uh, late stage translation research, can really help us to understand, for example, in grade, how to choose drugs wisely, um, how to implement new care models more effectively, 
And then finally, as I described in Real Health, how to deliver and evaluate complex behavioral interventions and usual care, looking at sort of the range of various um, ways of going about doing that. So thank you again. Take questions. I just want to um, acknowledge collaborators for the Diabetes Care Collaborative, um, Stephanie Eisenstadt, a primary care doctor, and Anne Thorndike, who's also a primary care doctor, and then Linda Delahanty, who's my collaborator um, on Real Health and just a wonderful uh, researcher and colleague. So thanks. Yes. So thank you very much. Happy to answer questions. Yes. So thank you very much. Congratulations, trials are very difficult. Um, you talked a lot about the barriers of the providers and for the self. What about the patients? Yes. For the barriers <laughs> for participating in real health? Participating for getting the care and all of that. In in which setting? In the real health or in the they're different? Okay, so I didn't I didn't so I didn't so these are really health system target interventions. We do have there are a lot of patient things, but in terms of in the diabetes care redesign, um, a huge effort to train providers was how to, how to engage patients, how to overcome barriers to insulin initiation, how to explore patients' fears. We trained people in motivational interviewing um, so that they could really, and we, in our kind of uh, uh, educational sessions, we had huge um, emphasis on motivational interviewing, both in terms of role play and didactics. So there were all of those things to do with patient engagement. We also, as part of diabetes care redesign, looked a lot at insurance coverage and tried to proactively choose drugs that would be helpful to patients. So we sort of did those sorts of things to target the patient, if that's what you're kind of getting at. Sora, I mean, you mentioned that in Hispanic communities, yes. they have a hard time to just Yes, so yes. What, how do you advise this Yes. So in real health, we are still learning. So I don't think we're necessarily going to succeed in real health. So what we've done in real health is we've translated into Spanish. We've based it at the health center. We have sort of health navigator people helping us recruit. And we've had a lot of kind of drop-in information sessions for, for people to hear about it. Um, and the people who are involved and do it on the phone or in person are pretty engaged. But the slice of that population that is doing it is just really low. So I would say that we have not cracked that nut. And um, we, I, I think I would say we did all the things that we thought would be helpful. What we haven't done that I think could be helpful um, is more of a drop-in approach. I think more of a drop-in approach would be more effective for this population, but it's hard to know how a drop-in approach would square with this particular intervention. So having sort of care that's more available and accessible at the time that people need it I think would work very well for this population, but it doesn't fit with this model at all. I'm actually working um, with a mentee of mine in psychiatry who has a diabetes problem-solving um, group educational intervention that's conducted entirely in Spanish, also in the Chelsea Health Center, which is a drop-in approach. And that has been helpful in terms of people do drop in, but I don't think it's, it's gained the kind of effect that we would like to see either. So it's, I don't know if you have ideas that you'd like to share, but it's been really challenging. Well, it's costly, but, you know, households, for example. Oh, yes, yeah. Yes. 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 And I've actually there have been some promotora interventions that have had intensive house home visits, and I, I agree. I think those can be really effective. Yes. In the real health study, how do you handle the use of newer diabetes medications that are associated with some weight loss? Yeah. Good question. So, um, so in idle C, we actually excluded people who were on GLP-1s. And actually, at the time of IDLC, the penetration of SGLT2s was so low that it wasn't an issue. But we didn't want to confound our results. 
in real health, we're taking all comers. Um, the uh, inclusion criteria is sort of stable medication. So you can't just start a GLP-1 and join real health because that would be a confounder. But you, if you've been on a GLP-1 for a while, we'll take you because if you sort of hit a wall, with, and you have to have relatively stable weight for a period of, you know, kind of a couple months before joining, you know, not have cancer, sort of the usual exclusions. But our, our hope is that with a large enough trial, there'll be sort of balanced use of GLP-1s in all groups. And then we, the reason we ultimately made that decision is we want it to be translatable. We didn't want to just take a narrow population. We want to try and include as many people as we can. And we've actually had that approach with medical comorbidities as well. We're taking people who we probably wouldn't have taken for a lot of other trials um, from a medical and psychiatric standpoint to kind of see how it goes, you know, how does it work. But we don't reduce those medicines. We reduce, our, our approach to medication reduction is that we're reducing for safety, not for efficacy. So we're not using a medication to boost weight loss. We're letting providers do that. It really is relatively low touch from the physician perspective. It's, the goal is just to not have people get hypoglycemic on insulin when they start using meal replacements, you know. The meal replacement, how long is that intervention? So it's not, it's, it's not, a, it's, a, it's a suggestion. So it's when, it's, as was done in Look Ahead, we're not kind of handing out you know, package of extend bars. We're sort of saying, here's a range of things you could consider from a pre-portioned meal like a lean cuisine to a meal replacement bar. But the goal of the meal replacement, and you know, you could just tell this to your patients in clinic, is really to take that kind of question about portion control off the table. So instead of going out to purchase an expensive meal at lunch, you're bringing your lean cuisine, you're bringing your um, meal replacement bar, which then automatically cuts your calories for that meal for the day and helps a lot to sort of get things going. And people in the in-person groups, um, in Look Ahead and in Idle C, we had a lot of samples because a lot of people, and actually this comes up, I think, also as well as in the Latino population, there's a lot of sense that like meal replacements are not real food. Um, and there's a lot of concern about that. Um, so having people have the opportunity to taste it can be very helpful 